0: Good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Sav. Oh my gosh! Today we have such a treat for all of the people in the world. Mm-hmm. I just loved getting to meet Mary Beth. Yes, and we learned how to pronounce her last name,
1: somage I think Mary Beth. I hope I did that well, <laughs>
0: somage So Mary Beth Somich is our guest today, and she has something called Your Journey Through. That's mm-hmm. the name of her practice, right?
1: It's, yeah, Instagram handle. I guess that's the name of her practice as well. Yeah,
0: and her website. Mm -hmm. But she's an LPC, a licensed professional counselor, but Mm -hmm. I know the abbreviation because I'm so in the loop. (laughs) And she works with teens and young adults. Mm -hmm. And she talks a lot in this interview about like the importance of differentiating and talking through generational cycles of trauma and just signs to look out for. Maybe if you didn't have the path of independence and differentiation in your teenage years, like, what to look out for and how to pursue healing.
1: Yeah. And she gives some really specific examples of like what those cycles look like and some clear paths to take in order to move away from those cycles and into healing and recovery.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She's super smart.
1: Yes, very smart. She went to Columbia. She did. Isn't that
0: Ivy League? Or if not, it's close.
1: Yes. She was very impressive and very down to earth.
0: Yes. Very amazing. So we're super excited Mm -hmm. to introduce Mary Beth Samich. Yep.
1: Well, it's really a joy for us to be able to chat with you. Um, We're so excited about this conversation. And we would love to just get to know you a little bit more. What maybe drew you into the field of mental health? Any maybe experiences that you had in your upbringing that really contributed to wanting to be a therapist? Um, So I'm just going to volley it over to
2: you and just tell us a little bit about you and what drew you into the field. Sure. So I grew up on the border of Vermont in a really small town in upstate New York, and there was very little access to mental health resources virtually at all. You had to drive 45 minutes to an hour to see a therapist or go to a clinic. So that is part of what inspired me to go into this field. I just saw such a need for it. And dove into it. I remember I would order psychology mag Psychology Today magazine to my house as a teenager and just be like so into it reading all about especially dynamics, family dynamics and that just kind of inspired my work and then I went on to major in it and go to grad school and work in a lot of family dynamics settings. So now I have private practice in Raleigh and um yeah, that's me. I work mainly with teens and young adults. Oh, my awesome. goodness.
0: So with family dynamics and with working with teenagers, I'm not a therapist, so I don't know any of this, but I love going to therapy. Um, With that, are you bringing in parents to those conversations too? And what is
2: that like? Yeah. So that's a good question because sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think it can be really therapeutic for teenagers to just have like a safe and private space. Uh, because they're going through this time of trying to differentiate from their family and become independent. And so that's really important. And I try to lay the foundation for that with parents in the beginning. Like that's probably the most therapeutic thing. But if there is work that really needs to be done with the parent and the teen, like communication-wise, then I suggest we do some joint sessions.
0: Is that uncomfortable?
2: It can be. I often see like the teenager like completely changes in front of their parents. Um, And so I feel like I'm kind of the bridge of both perspectives, but mainly the teenager's advocate in that scenario. So just kind of using some skills and creating a bridge to help their communication in that situation.
1: Did you always know that you wanted to work with that population or was that something that kind of grew as you were in school?
2: It definitely grew because I thought that I wanted to work with younger kids. And I did for a while. I worked at a foster care agency. I worked in a family wellness program, mainly with young kids and mothers who were victims of domestic violence. And I really thought that I wanted to work with younger kids. And then I found that teenagers were just so fun, especially like the resistant teenagers. Once you hook them, they're like the best yeah. <laughs> to work with. And so that just became, those became the sessions that energized me most. And I was like, I need to lead with this. So mainly I would say my clients are anywhere between 13 and 30 for the most part, probably 85% of them. And then I do still have a couple younger kids that I've just kept on my caseload and then a, a few older people too.
0: So when you're thinking through things like family dynamics, and this is, I don't know if this is your specialty or not, but this is when I was going through all of your um, social media stuff and just things that you've posted, what stuck out to me was this idea of how important it is to be able to identify dynamics in your family and then outside of your family unit, like in- Generations. So, just things that have been passed down and thought patterns, et cetera. So, when you're thinking through that, why is that so important versus me just saying, well, this is my issue, so I'm just going to work on me?
2: Yeah, that I mean, context and dynamics are huge. And for so many people, they are subconscious because. Patterns of dysfunction in families occur continuously and regularly. So, other members of the family just tend to accommodate the behavior without even realizing that there might be something dysfunctional about it. And then, if you don't recognize it and it stays subconscious, you tend to repeat those patterns for future generations and in your own families. So, I mean, I am with so many people who just think that certain behavior is normal or unavoidable in their family and not worth challenging. And so there's so much work to be done. That's so interesting because it's this like dual role.
1: I would love for you to speak to this because what comes to mind for me is like this dual role of like normalizing and almost denormalizing things that, you know, because when you grow up in your family, there's so much that you think is normal because that's all you've known. And then when you start experiencing other families and you start growing up and then you go to therapy, you realize, oh, wait a second. Like there might be some of these patterns and experiences that I've had that aren't quite functional or normal. So how does that work when you're helping a client like identify some of these patterns in their family that might not be healthy or quote unquote normal?
2: Sometimes you just um, help me think of a specific example that happens a lot because I do work with teenagers. They'll go away to college and then they'll come home and they'll realize that they're having a different nervous system response to behaviors that were once normal to them before right? Like dad used to yell a lot and I, you know, it never bothered me, but then I went to college and I was around all these really regulated people and this calm communication. And now I come home and I'm super stressed out when he yells. So sometimes it takes removal from that context. And then other times, if there is no opportunity for removal, it's just providing the context of, okay, you know, these patterns, Probably function for a reason and make sense in this family system. However, if we were to shift those dynamically, we might be able to have some healthier communication and meet your goals that you've outlined for therapy. This
0: is difficult too because it's in the context of teenagers, but then even as adults, let's just say adults, what happens when an adult realizes maybe someone in their mid 20s all of a sudden is like, hmm, I have a really odd and codependent relationship with my mom. And it's the first time that they're realizing this. But the mom is not willing to change for whatever reason. So what does that process look like as far as not removing? Because you can't remove yourself. Or In a lot of situations, people want to maintain and have a relationship with their own mom. And if that's the goal, where it's like, I want to have a relationship with my mom, but my mom won't change. How do you then pursue health and then simultaneously recognize the unhealthy dynamics that are happening?
2: That's such a common dynamic, honestly. So it's one I see a lot and it typically requires some boundary setting. And it's not easy at first because anytime that you shift the family system that has functioned that way for so long, like there is a reason that it has functioned that way. So you're really shaking up the system and people don't like that and it's uncomfortable. So part of this is part of therapy is just having support around setting your own boundaries and dealing with that discomfort and that pushback and like having a person to work that through with.
0: Right, and the boundaries thing, it's like, Everyone harps on it, but it's because it's so important. (laughs) Yes.
2: Oh my gosh, I did two podcasts on boundaries in the past month that are coming out in July because it is so important. And my husband, like, will joke with me. He's like, "Boundaries is your favorite word." (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, "Well, maybe."
0: (laughs) But it's true that so many of our family systems, whether they were healthy or not, a lot of them operated void of boundaries. Like, you just kind of do what it takes to make things work and to. keep the peace, especially when you're a, a young person and then growing up into a teenager and then leaving to college, you don't really have the option of like leaving and starting your own life. So it's like, you just kind of have to do what it takes to make it work. And then this idea of boundaries feels so foreign because most people who are maintaining power and control of these family systems or like church systems or whatever, they don't want that to be disrupted. And so when you set a boundary and say, no, I'm not going to operate in that role, it disrupts the power and then everyone kind of falls apart. And it makes you feel like you're falling apart, too.
2: Yes. And boundaries, you often have to set them because there's a pattern of enmeshment. And that's when families are really intertwined and there are no boundaries in the system versus feeling differentiated, which happens in um adolescents. So that's part of the reason I love working with teenagers because I'm teaching them how to healthily differentiate and set boundaries and become their own individual before they get into their twenties or thirties and are like, wow, I'm still really enmeshed. And in this codependent relationship with my family and really enmeshment is a symptom of dysfunction. So we're talking families with alcoholism are famous for enmeshment. Right. Or other mental illnesses, abuse, anything with unpredictability and fear. um, The system creates the enmeshment to protect.
0: Oh, yeah. Can you define that for anyone who maybe doesn't know what enmeshment is?
2: Yeah. So enmeshment, I mean, it would really just be the absence of boundaries. It's similar to codependence. Um, The family is just really dependent on one another there. And there are. Oh, this is a good Good definition would be there are unwritten rules that you abide by in the family and nobody questions them. Yeah.
1: Dang. Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: so good. Yeah.
0: Oof, there's a lot of enmeshment going on all over the world, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> yes. In a lot it's of so systems. Because I could see that happening in places of employment. I can see that happening in church systems. I can see that happening in family units.
2: If your family operates by saying, like, it is what it is, that's just how we do things, there's probably some enmeshment.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting. It reminds me of conversations that Sav and I have had or uh, episodes that we've done about like the family scripts and the roles that we assume. And it just reminds me of that. That, you know, you walk into your family system and there's like a script that you're very familiar with. There's roles that everyone takes. Do you find that in your work with clients too?
2: Definitely. Absolutely. Like to a T.
1: <laughs> I would love um for you to give some specific examples of what of those maybe how to implement. Uh, healthy boundaries or what would that actually look like if somebody is recognizing like, okay, there's some unhealthy patterns um, that I've experienced or or am experiencing in my family. And I want to take some steps to implement some healthy boundaries and move away from maybe some unhealthy patterns. What, what has that looked like for you and your work with
2: clients? I think it's really crucial to have support. Around Doing that because you are going to shake up the family system. There's going to be some pushback. And I try to reassure clients that when there's pushback, it means you should feel firmed that you needed to set a boundary because people that don't need boundaries don't push back on your boundaries. Um, I would say just really also in therapy, tuning into your nervous system and and how things I find that so many clients are out of tune with their wants and their needs, especially in enmeshed families, because those don't really matter. You're part of the system and you have a role. And so, you know, don't focus on those. And so therapy can really be a place where you get in touch with what are my wants, what are my needs. And those are foundational to be able to set effective boundaries because you have to be able to ask for what change you need to make happen.
0: Where are you primarily seeing that and I don't know if like patterns have changed over the course of your career so far, but what have you seen people's problems be most? Like what themes are you seeing? (laughs) I love how I like don't have language for it, but just like, are you seeing a common theme of teenagers walking and being like, hey, I have this problem with mom, this problem with dad, this problem with siblings, et cetera.
2: Uh, Well, every case is definitely just so unique. I would say for teenagers, a big one is privacy and then also independence.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Okay, why privacy? Because of social media and stuff?
2: Well, I'm also just in the context of quarantine right now. It's like, uh, but yes, social media too. I do have several parents that want to read all the texts coming in or act as gatekeepers for communication that their kids are receiving with other kids um, or, you know, leave your door open. Uh, things like that. And so teenagers are really struggling with privacy. And then also, yeah, that independence of just like, I want to have my own conversations and I want to go do my own thing and not be hovered over. And I think part of that has to do with this culture of parenting. There's a little bit of hover parenting, I think, in our generation or the generation before. So it it all just kind of goes together. I mean, you're
0: like rocking my world right now. I don't even have teenagers. But just the idea of privacy and independence being so important. And I'm guessing that those things have always been important to people. But maybe just because of different things popping up in our culture, then they are amplified in unique ways. And how do you honor and respect the privacy of people that you're raising That's such an important question for parents to be asking.
2: Right. Because that's how you start the process of differentiation. Like at some point, your role as a parent is to help walk your child into becoming an independent adult separate from you. And I think that is so hard. And because they're transitioning from being this dependent child to this independent adult. And there's that window of transition that can be really difficult to navigate.
0: What's the sign of an adult? So uh, most of our listeners are adults. I think all of our listeners, are right? <laughs> I don't know. But w- if someone's listening through this, what's maybe something that they can identify in their lives that maybe they didn't have a healthy path of differentiation?
2: Mm, um, maybe if they like to, or it's typical to talk to their parents like every day or more than once a day. That's likely signature of like codependence. And it depends. There's different phases of life where maybe you need to talk to your parents more often. But
0: totally. Yeah. But someone like in their mid twenties talking to their parents like every day or more
2: than once a day. Yes. I remember in college, um, there was a girl in my sorority who called her mom to tell her what she ate for every meal. And I, I was sitting there like, oh my gosh, I called my mom. Um, when was it like Tuesday? And she was like, I'm busy at work. Call me on Sunday. And I was like, what? So,
1: that's
2: yeah. so funny. Wow. No, that's
1: such a good thing to look at, like what the frequency of communication between me and my parent. And at what's coming to my mind too is a question that often surfaces in my work with adolescents too is, and even into adulthood, is this question of, um, it's like this third voice question of can I be connected and intimate with you while also being autonomous and being my own person? And there's such a struggle there. It's like, I wanna be connected with you and I almost compromise my autonomy for connection. And it feels like self-betrayal. That's something that really surfaces in my conversations. And I'm curious if you could speak to that. Like, what does it look like to be Um, have my own sense of self, have, uh, have autonomy while also being connected to my parent? What does that dynamic look like?
2: I think there's a really healthy way to do that. And it takes some balance and some boundaries. I think where it gets messy is when you feel an obligation to have that connection. And then I ask, like, what is that compensating for? because sometimes parents will lose themselves in the journey of parenthood too. They will lose their friends. They will um, disconnect in their marriage a little bit. And so when the kids are differentiating, it's time to reconnect with all of that if, if they've lost it. So unfortunately, sometimes kids feel this obligation to be there for the parent and and then we get lots of messy roles because the parent is treating them like a friend or venting to them about things. And then you've got triangulation and, and other issues coming up. So have you heard of the Cartman triangle? I, it sounds familiar.
0: That's what I thought you were meaning by triangulation. But it's this thing that Barb got into last year that was like different points on the triangle in relationships. One is hero, one is victim. Oh, Barb is like being like, no, that's not right.
1: <laughs> well, you had the, so victim, victim rescuer, rescuer. Persecutor. persecutor. I am familiar hero with that. Hero could be rescuer. Yeah, hero is synonymous with yes. rescuer. <laughs> but
0: yes, all of it to say that you do go into these roles. First of all, once again, you are blowing my mind right now. You, just the way that you're verbalizing this is so great and I think it's going to be so helpful. And the reason why we're even talking about this in the context of like, Adolescence and growing up is because if you didn't differentiate and you didn't create boundaries when you were, you know, when it was time to, A, it's not too late. And then B, you're probably in a cycle of dysfunction that has maybe been happening for generations. And so it's just important to identify that. So that's something that you've done some work in is this idea of like generational trauma and like cycles that happen throughout generations. Can you just tell us some stuff that you noticed in that and how you would even define that?
2: Yeah. So intergenerational cycles of dysfunction, we can't talk about them without talking about trauma because dysfunction often arises out of trauma and it's a maladaptive coping mechanism. So examples of maladaptive coping mechanisms would be things like addiction, perfectionism, abuse, um, conditional love, lack of boundaries, like we said, lack of intimacy in the family, or poor communication. So like I said earlier, they happen almost subconsciously. You're born into this family and that's just the pattern and you kind of accept it and don't question it very much until maybe you get older and you start to see different things and you start to feel different things and might recognize like this doesn't feel very good. But yeah, so if you've ever heard the term or listened to the term in your own family, like it runs, it just runs in our family. Then, especially if it's in reference to like a mental health or even a physical health related condition, there might be some unhealed generational trauma there. So um, yeah, even things like sleep issues, anxiety, um, and digestive health conditions are often also a marker of that because you're, it all is held in the nervous system.
0: Yeah. And I think that something that I've noticed in family systems is like when one generation hasn't dealt with it, that they then project it onto the next to alleviate their sense of guilt or whatever it is I have no idea but there is like something where it's like oh you're just like your mother or you're just like your father or like that's just what dad said when he was younger and what people don't realize is that that's actually just enforcing like you're gonna be the same way that we were because we are the same way that our
2: parents were it's an in-group mentality too what is that like, um, in group, out group, like this is our family. This is the way we are. We're not like them or you're not like this other group. You're like us. And so also when our, when traumas happen, physiological changes happen to your brain and to your body and, and they create all of this stress and change. And so there is a theory that we pass that on, like epigenetically, I guess, like through our systems. But then because I'm such a dynamic kind of like, nature versus nurture person, I also think of the nurture perspective. And if you are a parent who has not dealt with your own trauma and your own emotions and anxieties, it's going to affect your parenting right? You're likely to raise a child with like an insecure attachment style who is, because kids tether off your nervous system and your anxiety. So they're learning and picking up on things and really just tethering off of you. So they become anxious and it does become passed along both from a nature and a nurture perspective. I was
1: just thinking of that quote. I can't remember who who said this originally, but that children are excellent observers and terrible interpreters. Mm. Um, it just reminds me of that, that they're like little sponges. They're like soaking up everything that's happening around them. They're picking up and taking away things that are really profound. Like I, in my work, I do something called storyboard where, you know, we draw out some, some memories and then we kind of extrapolate some of the messages they were receiving. And you can see that like in, in action that children are taking away so much, but they don't quite have the capacity to know how to interpret it.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always Mm -hmm. use that metaphor, children as sponges too. Yeah, It's so true. So
0: when you think of things like perfectionism or digestive issues or whatever, um, anger issues, alcoholism, et cetera. So when you're thinking of those things, let's say that someone's listening to this right now being like, hmm, like I do have high anxiety around perfectionism. My mom has that. Her mom had that, what would you encourage that person to do to take a first step? Because I know that a temptation is going to be like, oh my gosh, like I don't even want to go there. Like I'm not 15 years old anymore. I'm an adult. I have my own life. Like, why would I even go dig up the past?
2: Well, I think to answer that question, it's like, do you want your children to to deal with the same thing? Right? Like really reflecting on how has this either contributed positively or plagued my life. And is this something I want for my potential kids in the future? So, and then the responsibility is really with you to, to change that and to make that a, a non-factor. So,
1: Yeah. And that kind of goes with the question that we, we were talking about earlier about like, as someone decides to engage in doing their own work. Like, how can that impact and intercept these generational patterns and cycles that have been at play for a really long time?
2: Yeah, I think you regulate your own nervous system so that you can show up in a regulated way. And those things aren't as much of a predisposition in future generations because of that. It's like you're breaking a cycle of dysregulation.
0: And even just being conscious of those patterns as they pop up, that is just... In itself a huge win because then you don't have to act with impulsivity off of them. Because you're able to recognize what's happening and say, Oh, I can change that. Like I have the power and the will, and I can change that with like help from a therapist, support from my community. And what that's doing is disrupting the flow of generational trauma and saying, like, it can actually stop here. And then my kids don't have, they're going to have their own issues. No one's going to be a perfect parent, period. But they don't have to have the residual effects of what you dealt with
2: because you can stop it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, sadly, a lot of people who are dealing with maybe high anxiety or perfectionism or any of these things that can be passed down don't think about it as being intergenerational. And they might just be hard on themselves. Like, why am I this way? And so that's why I really recommend like a family dynamic therapist to help you unpack, you know, maybe you need to learn about any trauma your families have experienced. And sometimes that's not really easy because family members will disqualify it if it's not what we refer to as big T trauma, like a major, major event. Um, But so many things can happen in your life that are smaller traumas. And those are worth exploring too.
0: With perfectionism, Talk me through—I don't struggle with perfectionism, so I'm not talking about myself here. (laughs) Asking for a friend. Yes, (laughs) asking for a friend. No, I really don't, though. Yeah, I was like, I'm a four. I'm fine with, like, things being messy. But when you think through, I think about my best friend, Catherine, who is an Enneagram one, who's, like, kind of thing that she runs on. And my husband is an Enneagram one, whose thing that they both run on are— just being perfect at everything that they do. Todd internalizes her his perfection. Catherine externalizes her perfection. So it's just really interesting to even see those dynamics. They grew up in completely different family homes in family units. Why do you think that people show up in that they're outworking of their trauma is perfection because there isn't necessarily like a common thread that I see in between their lives. But obviously there probably is something that you've noticed, but if someone's struggling with perfectionism, what are some common things that have popped up that cause people to try to control with perfectionism?
2: I think you just hit the nail on the head. When I think of perfectionism, I think of control. So you can come from a family that is extremely rigid and you can then be extremely rigid and controlled and perfectionistic. You can also come from a family who is like super loosey goosey hippies and, um, compensate by, oh my gosh, no, like I don't like that. I need to be more rigid and perfectionistic. So with perfectionists, um, you mentioned the Enneagram, Enneagram ones, which are perfectionists. Um, there's also an inner critic. So I also like to explore, like, what were the messages that you received from parents and were they critical um, and and kind of unpack that a little bit. So yeah. That's so interesting. You hit the nail on the head. Like, you can come from different family systems and they can still manifest in similar behaviors. It's just uncovering the why.
0: Yeah, which is so important too, because then we don't pigeonhole people for... Whatever their outworking is of their trauma, it's not like, oh, well, her parents probably did this or his family was probably this way. It's like actually people just deal with things differently depending on where you're coming from. And we have to just like let them be the ones to explore that pigeonholing. Anyways, Barb, you had a question, but I was just really excited about that whole thing.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, I wanted to go back to one thing that you are starting to talk about is like putting my symptoms and my experiences in the context of my family dynamics, Mm -hmm. because I, uh, like, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but it's like, oh, like, this is why, you know, I'm tempted to act this way or, or engage this way. And I think it can remove some of the shame Mm -hmm. That somebody could feel. So I'd love for you to speak to that. Like, as you put yourself in the context of your family dynamic, how can that impact a person's experience of shame?
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, hugely. Yeah. Like, there is so much relief in learning and understanding what creates these experiences for you, and even like the sensations of anxiety and understanding your own triggers that you might not have even been aware of, and then making links to why they are triggers. When you start to like, internalize, like, I make sense. My behavior makes sense. You see things through a totally different lens. And you feel empowered to change them. Wow, that's really powerful.
0: I make sense. Yeah, that's Gosh, really What powerful. a powerful perspective. Mm-hmm. And then putting that on other people, they make sense yes, in their context. Yes, yes. When you realize you're meeting them at a late point in their story already, where you don't know the whole first part.
2: Yes, and even when... You know, you, you might've said like, oh, my dad's so mean, he's such a jerk. But then when you dig into this family dysfunction and trauma and learn, you're like, oh my gosh. Okay. Like, I understand why he is the way he is. It doesn't excuse his behavior, but it does help you approach him with compassion and maybe set compassionate boundaries.
1: Wow. I feel like that's such a good like place to land that, yeah, it can give way to compassion for self and compassion for others. Well, there is a a question that we ask all of our guests, and it's um, if you were to give yourself a pep talk at, let's say, age 20 or 18, uh, whichever one stands out to you most, (laughs) um, what would that pep talk
2: be? Uh, um, It would definitely be to just like release and trust and enjoy. I think there's so much pressure around that age. I mean, I see it in my office all the time and so much anxiety, especially in our culture and with social media and expectations around like college, if that's your route um, and just letting yourself kind of surrender to where life is gonna take you and just trust the process and and not try to control the, every little detail because um, it kind of creates a blocking energy instead of an allowing energy.
0: Dang, Well, Marybeth, I mean, like you literally are so smart, so kind, just really well-spoken, great communicator. And I'm just so thankful that we got to have this chat.
2: Thank you. This was so fun.
1: Yes. Uh, there's such an ease about you. We really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. To, yes. Yeah.
0: I'm like, I'm going to Raleigh. We're going <laughs> to get coffee. Yes. <laughs> it's all happening. Yes.
2: Um, And also, how can people find you, Marybeth? Yeah. So the easiest way is probably on Instagram. My handle is at your journey through. And then my website is your journey com. Awesome. Okay.
0: Go forth and find her. Yes. Well, you beautiful people. If you haven't been told today, we believe in
1: you and you have what it takes.
0: Thank you for listening. If you want to keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram at
1: the Pep Talks Podcast. And we want to be clear. Everything that we're sharing on this podcast is not or intended to be therapy or psychological advice. It does not constitute a client therapist relationship. We are your virtual friends, not therapists. Yes. So if anything comes up for you during these podcasts, we completely understand. We're talking about a lot of different topics. So please consult a mental health provider for support. You can find a therapist through Psychology Today's website at www.psychologytoday.com. Yep. Have a great week, guys.